You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hello, I'm Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me today. Exactly 75 years ago, to this day, on June 22, 1948, the Alta Lena, which was a ship that was loaded with fighters and military equipment, it was on its way to come to the rescue of the Jewish people during its War of Independence, and it was blown up on the shores of Tel Aviv. Yeah, it was blown up, not by Arabs, not by the British, but by the Jews of the Haganah, which of course represented the Jewish establishment at that time. Why did David Ben-Gurion give the order to blow up the Altalena? We kind of needed those weapons. Well, once we answer that question, once we understand the mindset of these people who took control of the state and they haven't released their control ever since, once we understand where they're coming from, once we understand why they did it, then we'll be able to understand why they do what they do. We'll be able to understand why they destroyed the Sephardi Jews and the Ammonite Jews that came into this country in the 40s and the 50s. We'll understand why they hated and they called Begin a fascist, why they went on a nonstop crusade to demonize Rabbi Kahana, why they're going nuts about this judicial reform. We'll understand all that when we answer the question of why they blew up the Altalena. Because it's really one Altalena after another. So let me give some background. The Altalena, it was an Irgun ship. The Irgun was one of the Jewish undergrounds, also known as the Etzel. And the Etzel was headed by Menachem Begin. He took over for David Raziel, who had been killed on a mission. And like I said, the Etzel, they were an underground group who together with the Lehi succeeded in blowing the British out of the Holy Land. And the Etzel, they were students of Zev Jepetinsky. As a matter of fact, the name Altalena was Zev Jepetinsky's pen name. Okay. So now here's the situation. The British were out, but they left their weapons for the Arabs, and the Arabs went on the attack, trying to destroy a very, very young country, which had just declared its independence in May 1948. And the one thing the Jews in Israel needed were weapons. They were desperate. I mean, if you read books on the War of Independence, on the conquest of Jerusalem, for instance, how the Jewish fighters were counting their bullets they couldn't waste any ammo. They had to use their ammunition sparingly because there wasn't enough. There were towns that the Jewish fighters had seized, but they couldn't hold onto them because they had a lack of arms and ammunition. And then on June 22nd, 1948, the Alta Lena, commanded by the American Monroe Fine, comes rolling in towards the harbor of Tel Aviv. It's a little late in coming. They could have used these weapons a long time ago, but it's better late than never aboard the Alta Lena. A thousand volunteers who came to fight for a Hebrew nation. Now listen to what was on board this ship. We're talking about a $5 million cargo of arms, which included 2,000 modern rifles instead of those outdated Sten guns they were using, about a million rounds of ammunition, 250 machine guns, not to mention a battalion of fighters. And there's no doubt that if these arms had gotten into the hands of the Jewish fighters, the situation of the country would have been radically changed. Basically, what Israel won in 1967, we could have achieved it already in 1948, at least. Let me say it again. The lands that Israel conquered in 1967, Yehuda, Shomron, and the rest of Jerusalem, we would have had that already in the 1948 War of Independence if the weapons of the Altalena were dispatched to the Jewish fighters. Okay, so what happened? Well, as the Alta Lena approached, the new Jewish government, headed by Ben-Gurion, was on the beach to greet them. 
And what they did was they opened fire on the Atalena. It was an easy target, an anchored ship about 100 yards away, and shells struck the Atalena like someone was ringing up a score in a pinball game. Right off the bat, six men on the Atalena were killed and 15 wounded. Jews jumped into the water, and they shot at them while in the water. Machine guns turned on the swimmers, and the accuracy of the Haganah was getting better. They drowned six of the swimmers. And the Atalena, of course, went up in flames. Well, Ben-Gurion wasn't very remorseful about it. He issued a statement in the Knesset. Ashrei totach, blessed are the bullets that killed the enemies of Israel. And Ben-Gurion added that the cannon that destroyed the Atalena, it's holy and it should be enshrined and placed in the Beit HaMikdash. That's Ben-Gurion's own words in the minutes of the Knesset. So I'm sure you're asking, why did they do it? Why would Ben-Gurion give orders to blow up the Atalena? Well, you can read about it in a lot of different books. It's a very famous episode. And I think Menachem Begin's account is the most credible in his book, The Revolt. Menachem Begin was a first-hand witness to it. You have to remember, there was still a lot of animosity between the undergrounds, the Lechi, the Etzel, and the Haganah. And they were basically fighting this war of independence in their pre-state factions, Etzel, Lechi, Haganah. Now, Ben-Gurion, he wanted it that these arms coming in, he says, they belong to the state. There's a state now. There's a government now. Hand them over. We have the authority to decide how the weapons are going to be distributed. It's not Hefke here. And he gave an ultimatum that the weapons have to be handed over. Now, he was concerned that Begin would arm his guys of the Etzel more than everybody else because the Etzel fighters were very poorly equipped. The thing is, if you want to research it, you'll see that a lot of agreements were made between Ben-Gurion and Begin and the captains of the Altalena. And the issue was supposed to be settled. But yet Ben-Gurion, that blesser of bullets, he blew up the Altalena anyway. Well, let me tell you the real reason why Ben-Gurion did it. This vindictive man with the funny haircut. You see, he hated Begin. He saw Begin as a political rival because Begin had emerged from the underground. The British were already out. He wasn't in the underground anymore. And he was making speeches. He was out in the streets now holding rallies, drawing big crowds. And he was a great speaker. And Begin was getting a lot of cheers. And Ben-Gurion was getting jealous. And everybody knew that it was the Etzel Nalechi who did the dirty work in chasing the British out. Now, Shmuel Katz, who was a big guy in the Etzel, and he became a very close advisor to Begin when Begin became the prime minister, he claims that Ben-Gurion wanted to eliminate Begin right there. He wanted to rid himself of his political rival. He wanted to kill him. And that's certainly a possibility. I think it might have been this. What caused Ben-Gurion to do this? It was because the Atalena, it was an Etzel initiative. It wasn't his initiative. You see, that's the whole thing. If it's not Ben-Gurion's initiative, he doesn't want it. He doesn't want another movement other than his being successful. Because these guys, they have to rule. They have to set the tone. Whether there's a state or not a state, that doesn't matter. What matters is, is that if there is a state, we're the Balabayat. We run the state. And that's why Jabotinsky used to call them Cain from Cain and Abel. Like there are only two people in the world but Cain has to be the Balabayat. So once you understand this, then you understand a lot why they spiritually destroyed those Sephardi Jews who came into the country in the 40s and the 50s. Why? Because they saw tens of thousands of new immigrants flowing in, all religious, and they're thinking, who are they going to vote for? Not for us. We're secular socialists. So we got to take off their earlocks. We got to put them into the kibbutzim. We got to de-Judaize them. And so it's one Altalena after another. We have to stay in power and this ship is going to make Begin look good. Of course, their excuse is that they wanted the arms to be handed over 
to the government in an organized, orderly fashion. Because, you know, we're the adults in the room. We know how to handle it. And if it doesn't work that way, we just blow up the ship. And that really is what stands behind the whole judicial reform debate. The leftists and elitist cliques will oppose it. They just want to maintain their power, which is in those courts. All the peasants who voted for the right-wing government, they don't know anything. Let us, the adults in the room, let us handle it. We know how to run the country. We know better. These new right-wing extremist ministers, they're novices. They're not capable of running the police or the finances of the country. And we'll bring former police chiefs and other experts to explain it to you. We'll parade before the media talking heads to explain how Ben Greer and Smutrich, not only are they terrorists in suits, but they're amateurs. So it's one Altalena after another. You know, there's something interesting that really connects the Altalena to these judicial reform debates. One of the captains of the Altalena, we said it was Monroe Fine, and the other one was an Etzel fighter named Eliyahu Lankin. He survived the shooting on the Altalena. He wasn't killed. But after coming to the shore, he was arrested by the Israeli government and kept in administrative detention for two months. Now, why do I mention this? Because the nephew of Eliyahu Lankin, it's today's justice minister, Yariv Lavin. And he's leading the charge for those judicial reforms as the Sarmish Batim. And when the left went nuts and the pilots threatened and the country almost closed down, in the face of all that, Yariv Lavin didn't flinch. Most of the others did. A lot of people on the right got panicky and Bibi started to take it back and started to soften his stance. But Yarin Lavin, he's one of the few who didn't flinch. He did not back up an inch and he wasn't scared off by the leftist threats. And I think, I don't know, but I think if you asked him, I bet that he's thinking that these are the same people, the same elite socialist clique who feel that they're the privileged ones and they must be in charge. These are the same people who shot at his uncle on the Altalena. Those are the same people who are trying to shoot down those judicial reforms. And that's why Levin is standing strong. Now, the sinking of the Altalena, even though it was 75 years ago, it's still something that reverberates through Israeli society to this day. I mean, you mention Altalena and you're going to get a reaction. A few years ago, Prime Minister Netanyahu, in his diplomatic way, he said that the Altalena affair was the result of a mistake made by a young government. That's how we defined it. A mistake made by a young government. And the same Sar Mishpatim, Yariv Lavin, again, the nephew of the Altalena's commander, he challenged Netanyahu. He said, listen, listen, let's, let's be dugri. Let's see it clearly. The 16 victims of the Altalena were murdered by their own brothers. So that's what Lavin said to Netanyahu. And the fact that they call it the Altalena affair, you know, if you go to Wikipedia and look it up, they'll call it the Altalena affair. It's an affair, like an affair with Mrs. Robinson. You know, it's an affair. That kind of makes everything okay, doesn't it? By calling it the Altalena Affair. Anyway, the Altalena's burned out hull. It sat on the Tel Aviv coast for almost a year until Ben-Gurion ordered that the Navy drag it out and sink it. And this Altalena episode, for good reason, always evoked the most emotions. I mean, it was, I mean, it was basically a civil war that the Haganah was starting here and Begin just refused to participate in it. But in 1959, when Begin was in the opposition and he was reviled, and Begin was mocked by David Ben-Gurion and his colleagues who were in power. And Begin finally said to him like this, Mr. Ben-Gurion, from this stage, you accuse me of planning and organizing an armed rebellion? That's a very serious allegation. That is, Ben-Gurion accused Begin of trying to organize an armed rebellion by bringing in the Altalena. That's where he looked at it. So Begin says, that's a very serious allegation. And I accuse you of false charges and blood libel. And I accuse you 
of an attempt to ignite a civil war in Israel while the enemy is upon us. But don't forget, this was during the War of Independence that they blew up the Atalena. I accuse you of the murder of 19 volunteers, pure and holy. Anyway, I'm sure that many of the listeners have heard of this Atalena episode before. Wait a minute, why am I calling it an episode? That's like calling it an affair. It's not the Altalena episode. It's the sinking of a Jewish ship by fellow Jews, a ship that would have brought salvation in the War of Independence. It's not the Altalena affair. It's not the Altalena episode. It's the Altalena murder. So like I said, most of you have probably heard of the Altalena in one way or another, but I want to bring something that might be new that not everybody knows, and that's how the money was raised for the purchase of this ship and all its ammunition. Well, the Irgun, they had a department in the United States to help raise funds for the underground. It was called the Berkson Group. And they convinced Ben Hecht to get on board and help them out. Now, Ben Hecht, he was a famous Hollywood screenwriter at the time. And he became a tremendous help to the Irgun from overseas. He donated. He got other Hollywood fat cats to give to the cause. And Ben Hecht was eventually blacklisted in Hollywood from writing screenplays for movies. He had to go by a pen name. Anyway, Ben Hecht, he writes in detail in his memoirs all about his experiences with the uh, Etzel guys in America. And he's got some great stories. And I want to read what he writes about how he raised the money for the Altalena. Who did he turn to at this point? Well, he found another great sympathizer to the cause. Who was it? Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen, for those who don't know, he was part of the Jewish mafia in those days. You know, you had Mayor Lansky and Bugsy Siegel. And Mickey Cohn stepped up big time for the new Jewish state. And I'll read now from Ben Heck's memoirs in a book called Child of the Century. I'll read now how the money for the Altalena was raised. And this is what he writes. Mickey Cohn, then bookie emperor of California, arrived in Oceanside one afternoon with his manager and bodyguard, Mr. Howard. Mr. Howard was a small, tempestuous man, a manufacturer from New York. Mickey had been a good prize fighter in his youth in the 135-pound division, but he had put on weight as an underworld king due to his passion for ice cream and French pastry. He ate little else. Outwardly, he was a calm, staring man in a dapper pastel suit. Okay, so Mickey Cohn has come to visit Ben Hecht because he knows that Ben Hecht is connected to the Jewish underground and Ben Hecht wants to help out too. Now, Mickey Cohn himself doesn't speak much. He has this Mr. Howard guy talking for him. He's just like this. I can't understand why you're having any trouble raising finances in Hollywood for your outfit, Mr. Howard said, very businesslike. The movie studios are run by the richest Jews in the whole world. They could underwrite this whole Irgun matter overnight. So Mickey Cohn's aide, Mr. Howard, is saying, there's so many millionaires in Hollywood, all you need is one fat check from a millionaire, and we're set. So Ben Hick now answers him. I explained that all the rich Jews of Hollywood were indignantly opposed to Jews fighting and were working very hard to keep us from helping them. Mickey Connell spoke for the first time. Knocking their own proposition, huh? He said. They both studied me. It was obvious they had never before made any distinction between upper bracket Jews. That is, they thought all rich Jews are the same, that they're all leftist liberals and they're meeting Ben Hecht, who's a different kind of rich Jew. Finally, Mr. Howard asked quietly, what city were you born in? New York City, I said. What school did he go to, Mr. Howard asked. Broom Street number two, I answered, in the ghetto. A wave of relief seemed to come over them. I'd like to see you some more, said Mickey gently. Maybe we can fix up something. Okay, so now Ben Hecht is going to drive around with Mickey Cohn to try to raise money. And he's going to explain now that Mickey Cohn has fallen from his empire. This is not during Mickey Cohn's 
peak of being a mafia guy. He's like on the way down. So he says like this, I went with Mickey Cohen and his court jester, Nettie Herbert on all night drives along the Pacific. These were bad times for Mickey and there was practically no diversion open to him. Any public appearance he made in Hollywood was short to draw gunfire. A rival gambling syndicate and some personal upstate enemies were pledged to kill Mickey and all his friends. They tossed bombs into his Westwood home, killing several of his cronies, and they sent most of his entourage into their caskets. Mickey himself was finally plugged in the shoulder. He lay in the hospital for some time, watching his room window for gun barrels. After he came out, the US government closed in and removed Mickey from further danger by sending him to jail for some tax irregularities. But before all these things happened, Mickey had struck his blow for the Jews. We drove along the Pacific shore toward an open night ice cream stand that Mickey owned. The owner, Nettie Herbert, made a joke that kept Mickey moodily silent for 15 minutes. The joke was about Mickey's clothes. Mickey changed his pastel suits three times a day before any wrinkle or sag could appear to spoil their glue-like fit. And then Mickey turned to me said like this, if you'll make a speech, I'll give a party where you can raise some dough. The party he's talking about was in Slapsy Maxi's Cafe. A thousand strangers, some with battered faces, some in society rig, came to the event. I asked Mickey who they were. Mickey, who was always in charge of everything, answered, you don't have to worry. Each and everybody here has been told exactly how much to give to the cause of the Jewish heroes. And you can rest assured there'll be no Welchers. Maybe I don't have to make a speech, I said. The speech, said Mr. Howard, is what Mr. Cohn wants to hear. So I addressed 1,000 bookies, ex-prize fighters, gamblers, jockeys, trouts, and all kinds of lawless and semi-lawless characters and their women folk. At the finish of my oratory, Madam Frankie Spitz took over the hat passing. There was no welching. Each of the bookies, toughies, and fancy dans stood up and called out firmly in contribution. I stood against the back wall with Mickey. He struck me with a stinging blow on the arm and said, make another speech and hit him again. I told him I was recently out of the hospital and had no steam for a second address. I had spoken for 45 minutes. Then Mickey pushed Mr. Howard suddenly toward the stage. You tell him, Mickey ordered. Tell him there are a lot of cheap crumbs and they gotta give double. Mickey pointed to me and his eyes were filmed. You heard what he said. It's for Jews ready to knock hell out of all the bums in the world who don't like him. Go on, tell him. Mr. Howard roared inarticulately over the microphone for a spell. When he had done, Mickey came to the edge of the stage and stood in the floodlights. He said nothing. Man by man, the underworld stood up and doubled the ante for the Irgun. You can quit crabbing now, Mr. Howard said, mopping his face. We raised 200,000 Gs. Furthermore, we've been here for three hours and nobody's taken a shot at us. Okay, so the event is a smashing success. They raised $200,000, a lot of money in those days. And Ben Hitt continues. I wrote Mickey a letter of thanks, telling him that nobody would ever forget what he had done for the Jews. A few months later, Mickey, stripped of his home, his hundred form-fitting suits, and every other vestige of empire, broke and sentenced to the federal penitentiary for tax troubles, telephoned me in Nyack. He needed $5,000 to hire some new lawyers to take the place of the ones who had been shot and killed in his employ. I was broke, but told Mickey I would make some phone calls and call him back in two days. I made the calls and called Mickey back. I couldn't raise the five grand for you, I said. That's okay, said Mickey. Good luck. Anyway, after all that effort by those good Jews, as we know, the Atalano was sunk. And Ben Hecht was just so disheartened after that. I mean, he didn't know about all the factions in Israel. He was doing everything he could to raise money. He didn't know about all this petty politics going on in Israel. He was just trying to help. He was just raising money to help the Jewish fighters. 
Who would have thought that this would happen, that other Jews would blow up this boat? He obviously had no idea of the level of animosity between the undergrounds. Anyway, a couple of years later, Ben Hecht wrote a book called Perfidy. And I'm sure that's his way of getting back the Jewish establishment. If you know the book Perfidy, it's a book that was often banned in Israel. And it's all about the trial of Rudolf Kastner. You might have heard of this book. You should read it, which exposes the corruption of the Jewish establishment during the Holocaust concerning the Jews of Hungary. That was probably Ben Heck's way of getting revenge on those guys who blew up his boat. I'm sure many of you have heard of this book and read the book. But like I said, the past is present. The same people hold the power and they don't want to let go. And we see from the Alta Lena murder that they'll do anything to keep themselves on top. Menachem Begin goes down in history as being a great gentleman because he prevented a civil war. Because a lot of the Yetzel guys wanted to go to war after that, and Begin didn't let it happen. And he's given a lot of credit for that. But there are other great leaders, like Israel Dodge, who thinks that Begin made a mistake by not fighting back. Why automatically give the reins of the country to Ben-Gurion and the Haganah and the Palmach and the Mapai? Why can't it be that the ones who brought the liberation, they be the ones to run the country? That's what usually happens, but not with us. So sure, nothing's black and white. And certainly Ben-Gurion has his merits, but it's important to know the history because it repeats itself over and over again, one Altalena after another. That's it for me. Don't forget to catch my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes, for an exciting and authentically Jewish study of the Bible. And you know, if you learn the Bible properly, you don't need Netflix or other diversions, because the Bible's got it all. It's got action. It's got romance. It's got real heroes, not fake Hollywood ones. And if anybody has any comments or questions, you can email me at LennyGoldberg40 at gmail.com. LennyGoldberg, two ends, the number 40, LennyGoldberg40 at gmail.com. I'll be back next week, God willing.